we're in week three of our series that we've, we've titled Uncommon Good. And, and really, the, the, the aim of this series is to help us as followers of Jesus just explore what it means when Jesus calls us to serve, really unpack what his vision is for his followers as they're unleashed into the world in which we live, unleashed in our workplaces and in our neighborhoods and uh, in the context of our families, in the context of our church families. And as, as a little caveat, I do just want to say that Jesus isn't the only leader who's commissioned his people to serve or live sacrificially. In fact, I think that there's not a worldview that exists, a major worldview that exists. It doesn't include to some degree or another like a, like a, a mandate or a command of its followers to serve and live sacrificially. But there's something that makes Jesus' approach markedly distinct. I think there's something that makes it uncommonly good. And so um, that's what we've been exploring for the last couple of weeks. And today we're going to take a, take a look at what it means for followers of Jesus to serve their neighbors. And in order to do that, um, we're going to look at it. I think it's an iconic conversation. I think it may be one of the most famous uh, conversations, most noteworthy conversations that's recorded in, in the New Testament. It's in Luke chapter 10, verses 25 through 37. And, and, it's, and what we have there is a transcript of a conversation that took place between Jesus and an expert in Old Testament law or, or a law expert, a religious law expert. And um, at, at this point in time in Jesus' life, he, he developed this reputation as someone who uh, associated with some really questionable people, people who were like criminals or prostitutes, people who were markedly opposed to the law, people who didn't measure up to the cultural standards or society standards, people whose lives had spun completely out of, out of control. Jesus had a reputation of welcoming people that, like that into his life. And, and because of this, you had a lot of people that really loved Jesus because of the way that he'd welcomed them into, into his life. And you had a lot of people that were extremely skeptical with regards to, to what Jesus was actually working towards. And so this law expert, he's coming at Jesus with a real like strong degree of suspicion. And, and, and what he's doing is he's going to ask a question. And it's a bit of a loaded question. And what he really wants to do is expose Jesus as someone who's just living with reckless abandon for the law. And, and what he expects Jesus to do in response to his question is, is, and really he's just trying to bait Jesus into saying something so that, so that he can call the authorities and get Jesus locked up. But what he's trying to bait Jesus into saying is something along the lines of the, the law's outdated and it's antiquated. And, and, and following it just makes us look like we're out of touch with reality. And um, he's maybe even expected him to say something along the lines of how, how people choose to conduct their lives as a personal choice, and God is the kind of God that will absolutely accept anyone. But Jesus doesn't say any of that. Uh, instead, he responds with two of his own questions, and then he tells a story to illustrate what I think is, is, is the vision that should shape how his followers should serve their neighbors. And so if we listen closely to this conversation, and I think specifically to what Jesus has to say, I think there are two things uh, that I see that should inform how we as followers of Jesus serve our neighbors. The first is that serving our neighbors, it's, it's central to who we are. Uh, according to Jesus, serving our neighbors isn't a program that we give our free time to. It's actually part of our DNA as his people. It's like written on the genetic code of our hearts. Uh, so that's, that's thing number one, serving our neighbors is central to who we are. But secondly, 
Serving our neighbors, I think what it really is intended to be is a tangible expression of God's vision, his overarching vision for humanity. And according to Jesus, at least this is how I read what Jesus has to say, serving our neighbors is a tangible expression of God's willingness to do whatever it takes for humanity to flourish. And that's flourish on every single level. And so let's flesh out the first thing that I see here, that serving our neighbors is central to who we are. Go ahead, I'm in Luke chapter 10. We're going to start in verse 25. Go ahead and turn there if you have your Bible with you. Uh, And here's what it says. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law, he replied. How do you read it? He answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. You've answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this and you will live. And so the conversation starts with this lawyer trying to trap Jesus. He's asking a loaded question. And I think it's the same question that most of us, probably all of us, if you're a human being, are asking on some level. He asks specifically, what do I have to do to inherit eternal life? And another way to frame that is, I think what he's asking is, Jesus, what's life really all about? What am I supposed to give my life to? And Jesus, Jesus responds in a way that suggests, like, this is a great question. And what I think is so curious about how Jesus responds is, he says, before I tell you what I think, I want to know what you think. And he asks, what's written in the law? How do you read it? And, and what, what, I, what I hear Jesus ultimately asking this law expert is he's saying, when, when you sort through all the, all the laws and all the rules and all the rituals in your worldview, what, what kind of character is God really after? What kind of person would you become if you actually lived the way that God designed for you to live? And so at, at this time, most law experts agreed that the teaching of the Old Testament, the law, and the prophets was really driving at one overarching principle that was meant to be directed in two ways. And the principle is love, and the direction of it is toward God and toward people. And so when the law expert gives this textbook answer, what he's really doing is highlighting the driving force behind what it means to serve our neighbors, what God's designed for us to do with the lives that he's given us. And so Jesus validates his answer and he says, hey, you've, you've answered correctly. And in fact, do this and you'll live. And, 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 and here's what I think Jesus is getting at, that the essence of what it means to be human is love. And, and the need to, ex, to, to receive love and to express love is woven into our DNA. And love is what God built us for. It's central to who we are and there are two places Jesus tells us to direct it towards God and towards people. And to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength means that God's your highest desire. It means he's your ultimate source of contentment. It means he's everything that you need. And when we start to relate to God in that way, what ends up happening is it becomes a catalyst for us serving and loving our neighbors. And so this kind of love that Jesus is talking about it's, it's, I think it's different than, than, than what we've imagined. It's the kind of love that persists regardless of circumstances. And it's a love that endures at all costs. And so when our, when our love is oriented in this way, Jesus simply says, we will live. And the word he uses there for live, what it really means is we'll experience life in full vigor. 
will have true life, will flourish. And so all that to say, here's what I think Jesus is, is kind of like to summarize what he's getting at. We're going to feel most alive when our lives are fueled by a love of God that's outwardly expressed toward people. This isn't the, and in Luke 10 isn't the only place where Jesus talked about this. If you go over to Matthew 25, the, there's, a, there's a stretch of scripture where Jesus is talking about sheep and goats, and, and he's, he's really what he's doing is he's casting a vision for what his followers' live, lives should look like. And what he, here's what he envisioned. Here's what I think he envisioned. He envisioned a, commun, a new community of people who would, who would embody the love of God in a way that allowed them to welcome anyone into their lives. The poor, people of other races and faith backgrounds, these are people who've been marginalized and mistreated, people who have no influence or power in society. Jesus envisioned that his followers would meet the needs of other people with the same level of vigor, determination, and commitment that they would meet their own needs. He envisioned a, a people that would advocate for marginalized groups like women and children. And his vision really, like, we're talking about all these, these, these groups of people who were Perhaps we, we would consider them to be downtrodden, but Jesus' vision wasn't limited to a certain group of people or a specific social class or folks that shared the same worldview that he did. And although his community isn't limited to people who fit a certain status, in Matthew 25, what he really is pointing out is that there are specific groups of people that his followers will pay particular attention to, people who are stuck in poverty, immigrants, refugees, people who are suffering, because of injustice, folks who were dealing with sicknesses. And Jesus' vision is not that his people would just provide emergency relief, but that they would welcome people into their lives and into their homes, that they'd provide them with friendship, advocacy, and the support they need to flourish. His followers, ultimately what Jesus was getting at, is his followers would be the, like the greatest neighbors and friends that the world has ever known. And so what, what he's getting at through all of this is that a life dedicated to serving and loving your neighbors, what it really stands, to, stands as is an inevitable sign that you've experienced the love, the grace, and the friendship of God in a way that's just transformed you into the kind of person who loves people. And so serving, serving our neighbors, is it, it's not how we get or obtain the love of God, it's evidence that our lives have been shaped by it. And serving our neighbors, it, what it is, is an outward expression of the love of God at work in our lives in a way that makes the love of God, the, 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 the uncommon goodness of God available to the people in our lives. And, and, and this is only possible if you've had an encounter with the love of God. It's only impossible if you've experienced the, incarnation, the incarnational love and presence of God by grace through faith in Jesus. And so when Jesus says, do this and live, love God and love people, I think what he's showing us is that loving and serving people isn't just something that followers of Jesus are called to do. It's central to who they are. So, so firstly, serving our neighbors is central to who we are. But secondly, serving our neighbors is a tangible expression of God's vision for humanity. And, and here, here's where the conversation goes next. We're going to pick up in verse 29. It says, but the law expert wanted to justify himself, so he asked Jesus, who's my neighbor? In reply, Jesus said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho 
when he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So too, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day, he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I'll reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. And Jesus told him, go and do likewise. And so um, one of the things that I'm picking up on here is that I think Jesus' initial response kind of caused the, the, the law expert to feel a little bit insecure. And, uh, and when I start to see the magnitude of Jesus' vision for how we're, called to, how we're supposed to serve and love our neighbors, I get, I get a little insecure as well. And I feel like I can, maybe we should sympathize a little bit with, with this law expert. And, 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 and the reality is I think insecurity, all it is in my opinion is just evidence that we're human. And I think it's also this, this insecurity that we see here, what it is is, is is there tend to be gaps in our lives. There at least tend to be in my life where there's a gap between what I believe or what I say I believe and the life that I'm living out or how I live out those beliefs. And so here's what I think is going on here. This, this law expert senses that the essence of what Jesus is saying is to love and serve people without limits. I think he has a degree of awareness that he's not living that kind of life. And so he starts, you know, scrapping to find a loophole. And, and that's what he's doing when he asks Jesus, who's my neighbor? And I think what he's really saying is, there's no way, Jesus, that you mean I'm supposed to love and serve everybody. And, and the reason I'm saying that is this particular individual came from a culture that openly ostracized and abused certain groups and classes of people. And in, in other words, he had boundaries for who he was willing to love and serve. And so people with different, with wildly different views than his, or lifestyles opposed to his, or people he didn't feel had worked hard enough, or people he felt had made a mess of their own lives were all blacklisted. But what Jesus, what Jesus has in mind when he says, love and serve your neighbor, it, it's based on something radically different than any of our standards. And so what Jesus does at this point is he, he tells a story to help us see what he has in mind. And the story, really what it is, it's about a kind of person who is willing to reorient their agenda around the needs of other people. Even people who aren't from his culture or social class. He's the kind of person who's willing to leverage whatever he has to help people in his path. Even people who don't hold the same values or worldview. Even people who could never pay him back. And his way of life, it's a bit risky. It's costly. It's dangerous. It's sacrificial. But it's powerful. It's life-shaping and it's life-giving. And it's about a person who shows up in ways that bring holistic healing and care to the people in his life. And he serves others through meeting financial needs or physical needs or emotional needs or medical needs or practical needs. In the story Jesus tells, he even meets like this transportation need. He actually gives somebody a ride. Uh, but, but what this is all intended to point out is Jesus is really telling a story about someone who's the kind of person 
who doesn't put limits on who they're willing to serve, when they're willing to serve, or how much they're willing to serve. He's the kind of person whose life is a tangible expression of a God who's willing to do whatever it takes for humanity to flourish. And the person in Jesus' story is a Samaritan, and he's from a class of of people that this religious expert really had an issue with. Uh, You see, and I think that's an important detail, because you see, at, at this time, Jews and Samaritans really didn't see eye to eye on anything. They had different religious views. They had distinct cultural views. They, they were known to dehumanize and, and despise each other. They, they accused each other of racism and oppression and, and injustice. And um, what was clear is they had no issue helping their own, and they also had no issue celebrating when their opponents suffered. But in the story, the Samaritan is the one who breaks completely with the status quo he breaks completely with the expectations of a culture that would have limited who he should help, when he should help, or how much he should help. He breaks with all of that, and he helps the person right in front of him, this Jewish man who's been assaulted and left for dead. And what makes this Samaritan's willingness to reach across racial, ethnic, and cultural, and even religious barriers so astonishing I think is what happens prior to that. Because moments earlier, you had a priest and a Levite walk by. And these were two people the law expert would have most identified with. And they're people who were just like him. And in fact, they're people whose job descriptions, meaning that they were actually paid to, their job, job descriptions would have included taking care of the poor or responding in pragmatic and practical ways to people who are suffering, yet they see this man dying and they don't even bat an eye. They don't, they don't acknowledge his humanity and they don't even allow themselves to get close enough to see that this dying man is actually one of their own. And so ultimately in response to human suffering, they just look away. Their morality and their intellect really didn't serve as enough in this case to move them with compassion and so they just turn a blind eye. And I think, I think here, here's how I interpret the, the life of this Samaritan. When he left his house that day, here's what I don't think. I don't think he had an elaborate plan for who he was going to serve and how he was going to serve and how much he was going to serve. I think he just simply left his house that day. I don't even know where he was going. Shoot, he could have got fired from the job he was headed to, given the fact that he kind of went AWOL. But here's what I think he carried with him. I think he had an encounter with the love of God that allowed him to see the people in his path and just respond in a tangible way. I don't think he was looking for a specific kind of person. I think he was willing to respond to whoever God put in his path. And the person God put in his path is kind of astonishing because it's a person who represented an entire culture of people who hated Samaritans. They, they, they were, he represented a religious regime that dehumanized and, 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 and despised Samaritans. And so I think he had every reason to do what the Levite and the priest did. Every reason to reject, ignore, or even take advantage of this man who was left for dead. But he looked beyond all that, and what he saw was a human being, this, at least this is what I think he saw, a human being made in the likeness and image of God who'd been left for dead because of a culture war. And he refused to look away. And so Jesus says when he saw him, when the Samaritan saw this man in his distress, saw this man dying, he took pity on him. And all that really means is that he was moved with love and compassion for this stranger. And I think the only reason he was moved is because he had been transformed by the love of God. And so at that point, the only criteria he needed to re- reorient his itinerary and absorb the spiritual, emotional, physical, psychological, and financial cost that we know comes 
when we serve our neighbors is that this person, he was, a, he was a fellow human being. That's all he needed to know. It didn't matter that there was no clear outcome. It didn't matter that he was a stranger, an enemy. It didn't matter that, that uh, really, we don't even know where this was going. We know that, that he took him to an end. We don't know if the guy actually recovered. We never hear that part of the story. But what we do know, what we do know is that the Samaritan endured a great cost when he allowed his life to be completely interrupted for the sake of his neighbor. And when you analyze, like, the time and the money and the emotional energy and the vulnerability and the risk and the danger involved, the Samaritan had every reason to look the other way, but he didn't. He was moved with love and compassion. And I think the thing that was at work in him that wasn't at work in the Levite and the priest is he didn't just know the law. His life was transformed by the God who wrote it. And this is why he was willing to pause the plan he had for his life to serve his neighbor in what seems to be a a limitless way. And so this story that Jesus is telling about the good Samaritan, what it really, what I think it does is it shows us what God has in mind when he says, my followers are made to love and serve their neighbors. And so serving your neighbors means meeting the needs of the people around you, even people who don't believe what you believe, people who can't pay it back people with opposing views, people who've let you down, people who are entirely unfamiliar. And serving, serving our neighbors means showing up in the lives of people to meet concrete needs despite the cost. It means being willing to welcome people into your life in a way that values them as equals and gives them access to what you have access to. It means, it means living in such a way that is so uncommonly good That really the only way you'll be able to help people make sense of your life is by telling them the message of Jesus. Living living like this, in this manner that Jesus is describing, I think what it does is it, it, it allows the people in our path to experience the incarnational love of Jesus. And it helps them get a glimpse of what God's vision for a humanity liberated by love looks like. And when we live like this, I think we're, we're doing two things. We're honoring our identity as, as followers of Jesus, but, but we're also honoring um, this, this heritage that we're a part of that, it, that spans thousands of years. Um, to to kind of show you what I mean, I think it's important to you know, take a walk down memory lane. Um, what I mean is we're going like, to talk about the first couple of centuries and the fact that during that time, the message of Jesus didn't spread primarily through uh, gifted speakers or well-constructed church services or programs. It spread primarily through people who experienced the love of God in a way that transformed how they related to the people around them. And there's a lot of evidence of this, but one place we find evidence is in a letter from a Roman emperor by the name of Julian. And, And when he wrote this letter, Rome was experiencing this monumental shift in culture, and and people were abandoning paganism, which was the religion of the day, the religion of of the empire, at alarming rates. Christianity was spreading like wildfire across Rome. And, 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 And so Julian takes the time to write this letter, and he's doing two things on one level. He's expressing his frustration, but on another, what he's, what he's trying to explain to his friend whom he writes this letter to is, is what he thought the cause of this cataclysmic shift was. And so here's what he wrote. He says, the religion of the Greeks does not prosper. Why do we not observe how the charity of Christians to strangers has done the most to advance their cause? 
It is disgraceful that these Christians support our poor in addition to their own, while everyone is able to see our co-religionists lack aid from us. The Greeks take care of the Greek, and the Romans take care of the Romans, but the Christians are promiscuous about this. And what, what I think he was really trying to communicate is that there's no limit to who followers of Jesus are willing to care, take care of. There's no limit to when they're willing to show up or where they're willing to show up. There's no limit to how much they're willing to show up. They take care of themselves. They take care of everybody. And according to Julian, there had never been a group of people like this in the history of the world. And since then, that group of people has been moving and shaking all over the planet for the past few thousand years. And so here's what that compelled Julian to do. Um, in the aftermath of writing this letter, he, he launches a strategy. And what he's really trying to do is mimic what the Christians have been doing, what followers have been doing all across Rome. And so he appoints leaders, he allocates funds, and, and he tells them, he tells his leaders, just be charitable the same way these followers of Jesus are being charitable. And, and, and it's just a matter of a very short time before the whole thing falls flat. Because what Julian didn't realize is that followers of Jesus weren't implementing a growth strategy that was developed in some boardroom. When, when followers of Jesus started rescuing babies that were left to die, and they started treating women with, and children with dignity and respect, and when they started welcoming people into their homes and lives, everyone else had rejected, and when they started addressing the issues that were plaguing their communities by taking practical actions, and when their generosity became so costly that it actually impacted their standard of living, and when, they, when the way that they embraced people cost them their reputation, and the risks they were willing to take ended up costing them their lives. They weren't implementing a new strategy. They were embodying the love of Jesus through serving their neighbors. It wasn't a strategy. It was a way of life that emerged as people had life-changing encounters with Jesus. The love of Jesus is what gave these early followers everything they needed to bear the emotional, spiritual, physical, psychological, and economic burden that comes with serving others. Because of the way that God had shaped their lives, they were the kind of people who were so intertwined, so involved in the lives of their neighbors, they were in a place where they could effectively respond to their needs. And they were basically the kind of people that saw someone being marginalized and they said, hey, we're the kind of people that advocate and protect the marginalized. Or they saw the poor and they said, you know what? We're the kind of people who are willing to realign our resources to combat poverty in the communities where we live. We're the kind of people who, who simply just can't look away when it comes to human suffering. And so Julian, what he was correct about is that the entire Roman Empire was changing. But what he didn't fully understand is why. And it wasn't because these followers of Jesus had found a more effective strategy. It's because these followers of Jesus, you know what they were doing? They were actually just following the way of Jesus. And according to Jesus, serving our neighbors isn't a strategy. What it, what it ultimately is, it's a tangible expression for a, of God's vision for a humanity revolutionized by the love of Jesus. And, and serving our neighbors, it, it ultimately it happens when we show up in tangible ways. And, and, and we make available this love of God, this uncommon goodness of God to the people in our path. Serving our neighbors ultimately is what gives the people in our lives ac access to the incarnational love and presence of the God who's willing to do whatever it takes to make humanity flourish. So serving our neighbors 
is a tangible expression of God's vision for, for humanity. And, and I think if that's the case, if it is this tangible expression of God's vision to see humanity flourish, we should probably talk about some practical ways that we can do that. And so um, I've got four that I'm just asking you to consider. And um, I'm sure some of you all have been serving your neighbors uh, far greater than I ever have. And so I'm, I'm assuming there's people in our church family that have ideas that are way better than mine. But these are the four that I figured I'd share with you today. Uh, the first one is pray. And um, I think that's something that everybody can do regardless of what lot you have in life, what position you occupy, what time you have. I think that's something that every last one of us can do to, to, to immediately begin serving our neighbors. And here's what that could look like. When you become aware of a burden that someone in your life is bearing, pray for them. Pray for them. Jesus tells us that his yoke is easy and his burden is light. That's the kind of life he envisions for people. So when you, when you encounter a, that someone in your life is bearing a burden, pray that the presence of Jesus would lift that burden on them. When you, when you become aware that our community is facing an issue, Pray for our community. Like, like, for instance, right now, there are countless men, women, and children who are they're grappling with homelessness. And regardless of what got them there, here's what I think God doesn't want. He doesn't want people sleeping on the floor, and he doesn't want people sleeping outside. God has prepared a place for us. That's, that's what Jesus tells us. And I think the heart of God is that people would find home somewhere, that they wouldn't be homeless. Um, there's a, there are countless things. Like there's an opioid crisis that's sweeping across the nation. Pray, take, take five minutes today. Pray that God would break the chains of addiction in the lives of people. Some of those people are in our community. But all I'm asking you to do is consider. Consider being the kind of person who becomes aware of a burden that people in our lives are bearing and just praying about it. Because what I think prayer is, I think it's a way for followers of Jesus to serve their neighbors by actively rebelling against the things that are plaguing our lives. So first, pray. Secondly, uh, look for small ways to serve the people in front of you. And, and here's my guess. You probably know somebody, have somebody in your life right now that needs you to show up for them in some tangible way. It could be showing up for them spiritually or emotionally or financially. The point is God's put them in your path in the way that... you that perhaps you're being called to serve them is, is through, not through some huge, grandiose idea, but some small, tangible way. Maybe even just inviting them into your home for dinner or uh, shooting them a text or spending some time with somebody that you know is really wrestling with, grappling with how heavy life is right now. I'm sure that when you look around and you see what people are dealing with. I think to a degree that can feel overwhelming. But, but what I want to encourage you to do is don't get overwhelmed as if you're the solution to the problem. This is a group project. And frankly, Jesus is in control of it. And the outcomes are his responsibility. I just want to encourage you to, to, to do something on some small scale. Find some small way to bear a burden that someone else is carrying. So second, look for small ways to serve the people in front of you. But thirdly, uh, don't allow your burdens to dictate your ability to serve. And I realize that might sound insensitive, um, so I'm not trying to be insensitive here. What I am trying to say is, hey, we can talk ourselves out of anything. And uh, there's, a, there's, a, there's a Puritan theologian by the name of Jonathan Edwards um, who lived during the, 13, the 1700s. And, and, and one of the things that he heard 
the people in his church family say is, hey, it's not the right time. I don't have enough or I don't have the ability. And here's, here's what he said in response to all that. And I don't think he was trying to be insensitive. I think what he was doing was trying to offer some perspective. That's all I'm trying to do today. He said, if we never are obliged to relieve others' burdens, except when we can do it without burdening ourselves, how do you bear your neighbor's burdens when you only do it when you bear no burden at all? And I think what, what, what Edwards was, was trying to help people see is that followers of Jesus are the kind of people who are willing to serve their neighbors even when it means absorbing another burden, another burden of time, another burden of emotional energy, another spiritual weight, another economic cost. And I think what he was ultimately getting at is what Jesus gets at on some level, is that uh, one of the best ways to avoid being taken hostage by your burdens and one of the best ways to experience the love of God is, is, is living in a way where you allow yourself to be emptied so that other people can be filled. So secondly, don't, or thirdly, don't allow your burdens to dictate your ability to serve. But lastly, stay curious. And when, when Jesus says, do this and you will live, what I think he's getting at is that there's a fullness of life that comes when you're curious enough to follow God's lead toward a new adventure. And, and, and I'll, just, I'll just share my thoughts on God with you all, which I feel like I've been doing that, you know, all morning. But, but here's something I think. I think God is far different than I've ever imagined him to be. I think he's far more loving. I think he's far more wise. I think he's far more powerful. I think he's far more adventuresome and committed and gracious and kind than I've ever imagined him to be. And, I, and, and all that to say, I think there's, there's way more of God to experience if you're curious enough to follow God's lead down uncharted paths and into unfamiliar, unfamiliar relationships. Um, and if, for, for me, as a follower of Jesus, that's a, I find that to be one of the most exciting aspects of what Jesus is doing in our lives. And uh, when I first met Jesus about 20 years ago, I knew two things. Um, and here's what they were, and they're not really groundbreaking. So if I don't inspire you, I'm sorry. I knew two things. One was my life was never going to be the same. Uh, the second one was Jesus was taking me somewhere I've never been. And uh, what it's taken for the last couple of decades is the curiosity to follow his lead. And, and I, did, I do want to share with you what, what that's looked like for me of late. Um, so back in January, like the beginning of January, I got a random text from somebody that I really hadn't heard from in a while about um, a, a bunch of Afghan refugees who've been living in hotels uh, near BWI. And, and so the next day, my wife Sarah and I, we, we suited up and we joined a small group of people and we just... We helped pass out food and, and clothes, and um, Sarah's a nurse and loves babies, and so, so do I, but I didn't get this opportunity. So she did some well checks on a couple of the babies, met a bunch of the women, and, and overall we met, we met uh, a, a number of these more than 200 men, women, and children who are now being resettled in, a, in, in Maryland after having been evacuated from Afghanistan when the Taliban took control in August of last year. And I'll, I'll just admit this, when we showed up, we weren't really sure what to expect. We weren't even sure, like, what we were actually going to do. We were just curious enough to take some initial steps toward people whose lives had been completely upended and ravaged uh, and traumatized by two decades of war, the collapse of their country, and now, and now all these challenges of being resettled in a place that's completely unfamiliar. And um, I can just say this, that over the last two months, because that's about how long we've been, we've been working with these folks, a lot's happened. We've been able to mobilize volunteers and help families resettle in permanent housing. 
Um, I've given people rides to some really far places. I'm like, man, you should have told me it was going to be this long of a ride. But anyways, I'm here for it. Um, we've helped people get driver's license. I learned how to eat with my hands because these, the, there's cultural paradigms that I'm just unfamiliar with. Never really eaten with my hand. But did you know you can turn your hand into a fork if you let it? Just saying. Um, but I've eaten some of the, the most amazing food, and I've heard stories that are, that are compelling and, and like heartbreaking all at the same time. Um, and last weekend, what I thought was pretty neat is, uh, you know, we hosted our pop-up pantry here, and then a team of us, we went up to um, Druid Hill Park in Baltimore, where 25 of these families have been resettled, and we were able to deliver a bunch of food and diapers and things like that. And what's been really neat is to see, and it's been super encouraging to see people from our church family and people all across Anne Arundel County really rallying to welcome these families um, into our community. But, but for me, the most powerful thing that's unfolding, this is the most powerful aspect of this tiny, tiny little part we're playing. And what it is is the friendship that's been developing between my family in one of, the, one of the Afghan families, the family of a friend of mine, uh, his name's Munir. And, and so on a side note, I'll just, this is an aside to what I'm getting at. I think, I think what people whose lives have been ravaged by the atrocities of war need most. I think what your neighbors who are bearing some really heavy burdens and navigating the brokenness of this world need more than anything else are friends whose lives have been shaped by the unfailing love of Jesus. That's what I think people need more than anything else. They need your friendship if you're a follower of Jesus. And so, so a couple of weeks ago, I was on the phone with Munir, and, and I was a little bit nervous because I'm not really sure how this culture thing works. And we kind of have an understanding. It's like, hey, if I cross a boundary, will you tell me? And, you know, vice versa. We've given each other permission to do that. So a couple of weeks ago, I called him and I said, hey, uh, what do you think about your family coming over to our home for dinner, and, and here's what he said. He said, we'd, first off, we'd be honored. And then secondly, he said, in my culture, we have this saying, you eat my food and we become brothers. And, but the way that he explained it wasn't like, I go to your house and eat your food. It was, I go to your house and eat your food, but then you come to mine and do the same. We sit at each other's tables and something powerful happens in our relationship. And so last Sunday, we had the opportunity to welcome Munir and his family into our home. And we, we cooked together. We ate, our children played together, we heard stories of what their lives were like back in Afghanistan and how difficult it is right now uh, having part of their family here and another part of it who's still stuck in Afghanistan. We cried, we laughed, uh, we grew closer as friends, and, and, and all of this is unfolding even though we don't share the same culture, we don't share the same beliefs, um, and on some degree we don't even share the same language. You know, he's, he's learning English, and I'm sorry, I don't know any Dari um, is, is kind of like, I don't know. I don't know how to speak any of his language. But he's learning English, and, and, and that gap's being bridged. But what I feel like is that through all of this, and I don't even know what kind of impact I'm actually having, but what I do know is I'm meeting God in an entirely new way as we're walking with Munir and his family through, through what's unfolding right now. And, and the only reason that's happening is because we were curious enough to take a couple of steps. We don't have a, there's no like bulletproof plan or airtight plan for any of this. We're just taking curious steps, trying to get in the tailwind of Jesus, and we're doing it towards unfamiliar, in this unfamiliar direction and with a God who's guaranteed to be faithful every step of the way. And so here's what I think Jesus is ultimately doing. I think he's inviting us to be curious enough to just look beyond 
what's familiar. And curious people are the kind of people who are willing to stop long enough to see what's actually in front of them, to see who's actually in front of them. They're the kind of people who, who dial into what's happening in the lives of the people around them. And they're the kind of people who are just, they, they, they leave this little door of openness to the next chapter of the, event, the adventure that Jesus has for them, even if it means unfamiliar relationships in uncharted territory. All I'm asking you to do is like, be curious enough to follow God's lead because here's what I think you'll experience. I think you'll experience more, more of the fullness of life. When Jesus said, live this way, like do this and you'll live, I think you'll experience more of the fullness of life that Jesus was talking about. So, so earlier, I, um, I mentioned the magnitude of Jesus' vision for serving our neighbors and how that can like, leave us feeling a little insecure or overwhelmed. Uh, and if, if that's how you're feeling at this point in time, overwhelmed and guilty, I just want you to know that that, that wasn't Jesus' intent with the, law, with the law expert. He wasn't trying to make him feel guilty. And I don't think he's driving us to a place of guilt either. And, and the reason is, like, Jesus is trying to give us footing that's sustainable, that's, that's, that we can stand on for the rest of our days. And I'm like, guilt, morality, and obligation, they only carry us so far. And so Jesus is ultimately trying to show us how to become the kind of people who love God and love people. And the key, I think this is the key to understanding this, and it's seeing where Jesus um, inserts this, this law expert into the story of the Good Samaritan. And I think it's the same place he would place us in the story. You see, the, the lawyer isn't the hero in the story. Jesus inserts him as the man who's, left, who's been left for dead on the road. And, and what he's asking this law expert to consider, it's the same thing he's asking us to consider. He's asking us to consider, like, what if, what if you got to the end of your rope? What, what if your life had been so hijacked that your only hope was, was, was that someone would show up willing to absorb the emotional, the spiritual, the economic, and the physical cost of your healing to the degree that you could never even come close to repaying them? What, what if your only hope was an act of free grace from someone who doesn't owe you anything, someone you can't repay, someone you have rejected, someone you've ostracized? What if that was the position you're in? That's what he's asking the, the, this law expert. What would you want? What would you want to happen? And what Jesus is driving at ultimately is this, that in order in order to be the kind of person who loves and serves your neighbors in this limitless way that he describes, you have to be the kind of person who's experienced the limitless love of Jesus. And when that happens to you, you'll see, you'll see people differently. Even people you've despised and rejected, people you think are irresponsible or deserve the suffering that they're experiencing, you'll see them differently because you'll be able to see that you really are no different. And someone who didn't owe you anything, that's, that's Jesus that I'm talking about. Someone you treated like an enemy, we're told that all have fallen short of the glory of God. Someone we've treated like an enemy has welcomed us in as a friend. And the gospel says that Jesus, like the good Samaritan, entered the road that we were on and he was moved with compassion when he saw how our lives were being dominated by things that are just deteriorating our lives. And he absorbed the cost of welcoming us. He absorbed the cost of our healing. Look, when Jesus entered our path and saw us, 
He knew that to stop and enter our pain and bind our wounds and associate with people like us, people who were his enemies and absorb the cost of our healing, wouldn't just put his life at risk. It would actually cost him his life. And despite that, Jesus didn't look away. He was moved with compassion, and it cost him his life. And seeing Jesus as, as, as our great Samaritan who loves and serves us at all costs in this limitless way. Really, it's the only way that we can become the kind of people who love and serve our neighbors, not because we have to, but because it really would, it, it, it's central to who we are. And, and it's a tangible expression of God's vision for a humanity that flourishes because it's been revolutionized by the love of Jesus. Look, serving and loving our neighbors in this way is what makes Jesus' vision for us so uncommonly good. And so let me pray for us. God, God, I think when, we, when I hear the message of Jesus and when I hear the way that Jesus has compelled and called his followers to serve and love their neighbors and the way that he's, he's called us to make you our highest desire, God, I just see that as like this this impossible bar that we can't reach. It's something that we in and of our own strength can't achieve, that we can't do. And in Jesus, what we're asking you to do today in our lives is make us the kind of people who, who, who have an encounter with your love that completely reshapes the way that we relate to you and the way that we relate to the people in our lives. Jesus, help us to be the kind of people uh, that your first century church was, the kind of people that that brought forth this cataclysmic cultural shift, not through by way of some strategy, but by way of our transformed lives. Jesus, transform us. And in so doing, transform the, the world around us. Jesus, help us to be the neighbors and the friends that you've called us to be. In your holy name, amen.